Welcome to the Everyday Oral Surgery Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I am an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver. In this podcast, you will hear from OMS surgeons all over the globe discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement what you learn here with the approved research studies. If you are a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com. There you can find the episodes in a more searchable fashion. You can post questions about the various topics, and you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter. Most importantly, if you would like to be interviewed on the podcast or know someone you would like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. Today, I'm with David Solomon. He's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Connecticut. Dave, thank you for joining us again on the podcast. Yes, my pleasure. Been a while since I've been on. Wasn't sure I was going to be asked back, but flattered. Yes, I'm so glad you came back. And I love talking to you. One of the podcasts you did with me, I re-listened to it like a month ago. We were talking kind of just about the struggles of everyday, like teeth and titanium. And you were kind of mentioning how sometimes you feel like a car salesman. And for some reason, it just hit my funny bone. And I started laughing so hard. I was in the bathroom actually at work listening to you on my headphones. And I was just busting up laughing. I have to, I have to check back to, to that one. But yeah, I do, I do have that sentiment sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. I think we all do. That's why it's... So funny. Well, good. Today, we have been talking in the past and we thought it'd be great to do a podcast kind of on some of the medical legal issues that we should be aware of and kind of the things we can do to avoid those those issues. And maybe we can get into a little bit if, you know, if we if you do get some of these issues going on, how how to combat it. But I think most of our discussion today will be on how to avoid getting into medical legal problems with patients. So, and we'll maybe start out our discussion on note writing. We can kind of start there and kind of discuss a little bit about how we should be writing notes to deal with medical legal issues. I think you probably agree, Dave, but note writing is, I think I feel a lot of oral surgeons feel like note writing is the bane of our existence. You know, we don't go into this to write we're not documentarians. We love working with our hands, talking with people, getting things done. And note writing doesn't feel like that. It feels like you're wading through sludge. And sometimes it's kind of painful. What Do you feel the same or do you enjoy note writing? Most of the time it is painful, but I do get some enjoyment out of it sometimes. And okay. it's funny because this topic, I don't know why I care about this topic so much, but I do. and. I recall as a lowly intern under your tutelage, I would get a lot of information from your notes. Your notes were particularly colorful, especially your history of present illness. Okay. You had a skill for being succinct yet descriptive, and you really painted a picture. Yes. I think it's a skill. It is a learned skill. I always thought about that, and I tried to do that myself and impart that on residents that I have the privilege of teaching. And, and also, you know, when I was a senior resident doing the same thing, I think it's really, really important to start early and get good habits with your note writing. It's kind of like when you're a resident starting out and you don't know how to read a CT scan, the best way to do it is to, to learn it is to do it and do it and do it. And you learn a lot, Yeah, but it's a skill, just like a lot of other things. And people don't, I think people take it for granted a lot. They just think, oh, it's just something I have to do. And I think the longer you go in your career, you start to recognize the benefit of writing good notes, the skill behind it. And then, because you'll see both sides of it, you'll see, oh, I should have written this because now this issue is coming up. Yeah. Or maybe you'll, whether it's a medical legal issue or some other type of issue that could have been simplified with a better note. Yeah. 
or you just appreciate the fact that you're reading someone else's note and you're like, oh, I, I really understand what happened here. I can really, you know, it gives you a lot more information of, as to what occurred, what went down yes. versus I have no idea. And it'd be nice if this person wrote a better note. So yep. I think for the whole of the medical community, it's an extremely beneficial thing and it's very protective of you. Yes. Yeah. You bring up a good point that note writing I mean, it is, it's multifunctional. It's not, the notes aren't just to cover our butt and, you know, stop us from getting sued. They have also that function of reminding ourselves of what we did in the past, helping other providers to know what happened, you know, in case care is transferred to someone else. And sometimes the patients want their own notes to kind of see what happened and stuff like that. So definitely multifunctional. I think, you know, one, one important step to writing good notes is, is just making them less painful. So anything you can do to eliminate the tediousness of it. And so often that, I think that means for me is having templates and copy and pasting or using smart notes where you can kind of say, okay, I did a TMJ console, you know, here's my rough skeleton. And then it's easier for me as opposed to typing all that out. And sometimes you forget it and it's nice to have templates that remind you of, okay, now I write this and this, and here's what I saw. So I think that can make notes less painful. What, what are some of the things you do to make your notes not so painful for you and, and efficient? Well, I mean, definitely templates. I think that's probably the most ubiquitous thing that probably most people do. And I agree because A, it helps you be more efficient and be fast at it. It also helps you structure your, your mind so that the more you do it, the more it's kind of like when you do your exam, for example, you can almost picture your note and picture the things, okay, like you said, for a TMJ exam of the things that you're going to be doing and looking at. And it just kind of further underscores the importance of the things that need to be in that note. So yes, not every, and I, you know, again, I, I'll probably keep mentioning this, but I, I probably harp on our residents more than any of the attendings in our program. I don't know, but just because there's a lot of poor notes. And when they get signed to me, I take time. I read every note that gets sent to me and I take time to go over it with resident if, if I think it needs it and I'll edit it because ultimately I'm signing it. But, but also back to your point about what helps. I mean, yeah, the template helps, but it helps you organize your thoughts. But as I made the mistake as a young resident, just like most people do, where templates can work against you and you can have things in templates that don't make sense because you didn't edit it appropriately. So yep. a- another aspect of using templates is it's kind of a double-edged sword. You need to, you still need to go through your whole note and make sure it's appropriate. Yeah. But yeah, templates for sure. So I've been in practice five years. So in my office notes, I made templates five years ago and I'm still constantly tweaking them and making them a little better, better and better. So I just constantly think about things that might be helpful or make things more succinct. And the other thing is in contrary to my tirade of speaking right now, you want to be succinct. You want to say what you need to say Yes. in just the right amount of words. You don't need paragraphs, Mm -hmm. but you need to be descriptive. And and that's what I mean by the skill part. I think that's really important. Yep. Another thing too, just to add in to making things less painful, maybe this is different for others, but I know it's not always possible. But I think it's less painful for me if I try to write the note as soon as possible after the procedure so as to remember what happened. And also it just makes it so that I don't end the day with, you know, because when, when I finished seeing my last patient for the day, I want to go home as soon as possible. And it's hard when I haven't written any notes and I have this giant stack of notes I have to run through. I think you're more prone to kind of skimming through things as fast as possible. Whereas if you have a schedule that allows, you can do the procedure, maybe go into your office, put your template in, write what happened. It's all fresh in your mind. Boom, one note's done. And it's not, you know, trying to to write a thousand notes at once, which is for me more overwhelming than writing one note every hour or two notes an hour or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that goes back to building good habits because you know, especially when you're a resident, you're seeing tons of patients and you're just slammed. And then the end of the day comes and you have a thousand notes to write. And maybe you write most of them, maybe you go home, maybe you write them from home, whatever you do, or there's a few you need to write from yesterday. 
And once it starts piling up, it's like you said, not only is it going to be overwhelming to deal with and you just want to get through it, but the quality of the note is going to suffer. Yeah. And ultimately that, that can lead to problems. I mean, and, and like, like I was alluding to earlier, like you'll see as your career goes on, you'll have issues and be like, wow, that was, I didn't write this well. And now I don't know X or whatever the situation is. So you kind of want to, part of it is just speaking to yourself in the future. So you can know exactly what you meant. Next question is, so what things in your experience thus far, have you found that are very important to include in your note to avoid medical legal issues? So we'll, we'll look at the note mostly just from that standpoint of medical legal, like, you know, what, what should be in there? Yeah. And I think that's always good to keep in mind though, because just the intro to this answer would be always have that in the back of your mind because you never know until all of a sudden you might get a letter and it might not even be a lawsuit that's about you, but you saw a patient for a TMJ consult because they were injured and a year later, or maybe it was a nerve injury or whatever it was. And a year later, your note is being requested. So no matter what, that note is going to be in a legal, you know, under a legal microscope. So even if you're not the one being sued, for example, it's still a scary proposition when you realize that your note is being examined. And so it better be good. But especially if you, you know, if there was something brought against you. But to answer the question, probably the most important things are, well, A, just a complete note. Yeah. You know, not missing missing sections, you know. And again, that's the habit. That's the thing. You know, it's like we teach residents about doing an exam in a very thorough and meticulous way where you don't skip steps. So you do it every every time you do it the same way, right? Same thing with your note. So just basically basics, you're not skipping anything. Probably some of the most important things would be if it's a consultation note about a procedure, you have something mentioned about, let's say the imaging, let's say it's about wisdom teeth and the nerve. You know, you can't just have your Panorex imaging interpretation be like impacted third molars. Yeah. It, you have to be more descriptive than that. You have to, in my opinion, you really need you need to be a radiologist in that moment and you don't need to put everything in there, but you need to have some discussion about the overall findings of that panorex and then also a focused interpretation of the third molar. So I have a template about that where I delete certain items in my note when it's appropriate. So for example, number 17 and 32 with no significant overlap or involvement of the IAN bilaterally. Or you might say you see certain radiographic findings that are important for high risk. So that's something we do every day. So make that very specific. And then finally, in a consultation note, and you're planning a procedure, well, the plan, you really need a good assessment with a diagnosis. There has to be a diagnosis for a few reasons. A, for medical legal, but B, for billing. That's a thing we'll, we'll get into probably after this. But your question is more about medical legal. Okay, so for medical legal, in your plan, you have to mention that the risks, the benefits, the alternatives were discussed and reviewed. The patient understands, the patient asks questions, and you answered them. Some form of that because it, it alerts the reader that all of those things took place. Yep. So I think those are probably the most important. And then same thing for a procedure note. Still mention that the risk, benefits, alternatives were discussed, informed consent was reviewed and obtained. And then, of course, you'll have an informed consent, and that should be a good one that you know has appropriate things in it and that's signed and all that. But I still think in your note you should have those things in your procedure note, you know, towards the beginning. Yeah. And then, as far as a procedure note, I really think it really needs to be very descriptive without being too wordy or long. Exactly what was done and and what happened, so somebody could read it and almost be in the surgery and know exactly. Okay, I know exactly what steps occurred. And then, of course, if there's something unique, you need to mention it. Yeah. And people forget that. I feel like people just neglect those things. Like unique is in like there was a sinus exposure or root tip was yeah whatever left in place or what do you mean? Yeah, I mean any anything like that that is just or something that led to a decision that was unique. So yeah, you left a root tip, and then why did you leave the root tip? You know, I left this root tip because visualization was difficult and it was small, you know, it was less than two millimeters or 
you know, there was a concern about pushing the sinus, or maybe the patient wasn't tolerating the procedure, whatever it is, you just have to have some sort of explanation because if you don't mention it, or you just say root tip left, and then that's the end of your sentence on that, you know, if something ever comes out of that, why did you leave the root tip? Well, you didn't document that, you know, it just, and it's just one sentence, you know, you don't have to go crazy with that. I just think that that's going to save you time and time again, if there's ever an issue and you just never know when there's going to be an issue. I'm talking medical legally. Mm-hmm. Even if everything goes great, people can sue you for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. And then totally. your notes are in the lawyer's hands. Yep. Uh, as far as the consult note, to piggyback on what you're saying, I think you need to kind of be pretty detailed with all of those aspects that we're taught of, taught about with uh, the consult note. You know, usually, so we start with the chief complaint, the HPI, you know, for wisdom teeth, let's say. I always ask the patient, you know, if you felt any pain, pressure, any discomfort, all this stuff, why are you here? Try to get as much information from them as you can. And I mean, and you think, well, why would that ever lead just like the HPI section? Why could that ever really determine anything in a malpractice case? And the answer is yes. For example, a brief story this was a acquaintance of mine that was not an oral surgeon, but a different dental provider who was treating a, a patient and had mobile anesthesia coming in to, to treat this patient. And the patient actually had a, a sibling that was also coming in the same day for the same procedures, a root canal under sedation. And mobile anesthesia came in to sedate the patient because the patient didn't, or the doctor didn't do the anesthesia. And there, there ended up being a compl- pretty serious complication with one of the patients. And when they went back through the HPI, it showed that the patient who had the serious complication in the HPI and the workup, the dentist wrote that this patient, you know, was fine and didn't have any fears and there was no real indication why that patient needed to be sedated, whereas the sibling that was also getting the root canal, it was noted in their HPI that they were super anxious and nervous, and the patients, the parents requested sedation, and and the sibling had no issues. But the other sibling that had no signs of needing anesthesia but went under anesthesia had issues, and that's what the lawyer pointed at, and it was the HPI saying, hey, you know, there's no indication in your note about why this patient really needed to be sedated. So I think being paying attention to what's in the HPI and, you know, that specific case, I don't know how that could have turned out better other than the doctor rereading his notes and realizing beforehand, oh, this patient really doesn't need it. You know, let's not sedate that patient. Even the HPI, my point of bringing up that story is even that the chief complaint, all the everything can be used in a malpractice case against you. And so you have to be very careful with what you're documenting. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think people probably think of the HPI as the least important or it's just, it's not as critical from a medical legal standpoint, but I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Really every aspect of the note is, and I think, I don't know, maybe why this issue to me is important is because I think I've you would probably agree we've seen a lot of terrible notes in the dental world and mm-hmm. I expect more from the oral surgery colleagues and and you know when you're in residency you're in a hospital you're working amongst physicians of all different backgrounds and there's a lot of bad notes written there too oh yeah but we need to be held to the standard of anyone else and I mean just because they're medical physicians versus a, a dental student or whatever I mean Notes are notes, but I think I think in dental school there's a struggle with that. I think it's more I don't know, maybe it was just my experience, but maybe it was just like soap notes and that was it. I mean, yeah. There wasn't a big understanding of a real a real note, a real exam with a review of systems and that thing, that sort of thing. But anyway, my point is it's like you need to be held to the same standard as as a physician and especially oral surgery, because you're doing H and P's, you're providing anesthesia. So, you know, we have the admitting privileges, we have all of those same things. So we should be writing great notes, just like anybody else. And just to piggyback on that, for example, if you're writing a note for a medical consult, and that can be a, a le- like a tongue lesion in your office, in my opinion, 
I mean, well, it's not my opinion. It's fact. If you're going to be seeing that patient for a medical reason, you need to write a medical consult note if you're going to bill them under medical exam, right? So for that, you need not just your regular kind of dental soap note. You need a medical note, right? You need a review of systems. And, and again, it's going to be mostly template and it just has to be in there. And not only for medical legal, but also from a billing aspect, you're going to get your, your fees paid, not better, but more often if your documentation is appropriate. And that's something that I think needs to be imparted on residents because for sure. residents don't think about billing ever. Yep. And then you get out and you don't think about it. And you, if you learned bad habits or you didn't think about, I mean, there's so much learning that goes on after residency. So I think, you know, that's one great thing about this podcast is, is that, you know, you're bringing all these issues up, but that's the kind of thing I try to impart to the residents. It's like, well, if you don't include this, it may get denied. And then you don't get paid and now you're chasing it. And so little things like that make a big difference from the billing aspect. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. Because I noticed early on in my career, if my notes weren't very good or kind of exhaustive of everything that I saw and the diagnosis and why I diagnosed it, then I got a bunch of kind of kickbacks from insurance companies saying, oh, we now need a narrative because the note wasn't whatever, you know, clear enough to to show why this procedure needs to take place or why it did take place. And now I got to write a narrative and it just takes so much more time than just writing a good note from the start. Yeah. Very important. Real quick, other things, you know, to point out one, one thing is that I've noticed that should be included in, in our exams, especially when you're involving teeth is that, that I think a lot of surgeons probably don't, put in or maybe they do but like probing depths you know around teeth like for example it's a third molar consult and probing depths around the third molar or if it's not visible distal of the second molar all the perio stuff that goes with that was there bleeding on probing was there pain you know all this stuff that in residency you probably don't put down because we don't want to sound like periodontists but once you get out it's like this stuff really does make a difference and if i probe distal to 31 and there's impacted 32 and it, you know, it's a eight millimeter with bleeding on probing. That's a whole lot different scenario than if it's, you know, two or three millimeter and it's tight and there's no pain, there's no bleeding. You know, oftentimes I'm just going to leave that tooth there. So you gotta, gotta put probing depths um, and some of the stuff that you see there. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that I'm kind of guilty of that particular ish uh, topic because sometimes I don't do that, but I agree. It's just that I feel like in that particular arena, there's a lot of patients we see that are, you know, teenagers and we're definitely taking out their third molars for prophylactic reasons. Yeah, that's true. I've always wondered about that because a lot of times their probing depths are fine. So I don't always include probing depths, but I think it's a really good point that you brought that up because it's very specific to what we do every single day. Mm-hmm. But, so the way that I kind of document that is maybe I don't mention probing depths in those particular exams. And I'm not saying I take out every wisdom tooth, but what I'm saying is the ones that I feel are indicated to be removed in the teenager that has normal probings, I have other reasons or other indications in the note as to why yeah. I'm planning to remove that. So I guess my point is, I definitely agree probings and things like that should be in there, but if they are normal or you don't include them, at least have some other reasoning. So for example, in my template, and I I don't mean to get so specific, but just obviously we do a lot of third molars. So my template is very specific for third molars. So under the assessment, you know, I have so-and-so 18 year old female, blah, 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 blah. And then I have a little blurb about before the plan that says, that I recommend the removal of these teeth because of these reasons. Or I might say I recommend or I recommend extraction of number 17 and 32 and monitoring of number one and 16 for these reasons. So to me, that's kind of how I get around an example of like normal probing depths, not to get around it just to remove the teeth, but if I feel like, you know, they are indicated to remove. Totally. Yeah. I, I feel the same. There are those prophylactic ones. I think some of the other findings you could include 
that merit taking out a tooth. It's all the stuff that shows there's not enough space for these you know, teeth to erupt in a good fashion. So for example, if you notice pretty severe crowding of their anterior teeth, I mean, that's a, an indication. If you look on the panorex and the, the ramus is totally overlapping the third molars, if the third molars are totally mesoangulated or horizontal, the you know, 17 and 32 or if one and 16 are way distoangulated, just all these signs that can say, hey, there's not enough space for these teeth and they're already starting to cause some issues here. Maybe not necessarily periodontal, but, you know, X, Y, and Z totally is justifiable for removing them as well, in my mind. Yeah, I guess I think my, my long-winded way of making that point is whether it's periodontal or it's something else, just make sure that your note is individualized for that patient. Yeah, totally. On indications. Yep. And then I like what you're saying. I think it's fine to do in the consult note, but in regards to complications and all that, I think in either the consult and or the treatment note, you need to review and say, hey, I discussed all this stuff with the patient. You know, and I, I'm specific, like I discussed sinus exposure, bleeding, infection, nerve damage, you know, damage to adjacent teeth. Patient had questions. Those patient, those questions were answered. The patient understood and the patient agreed to proceed with the treatment. That is something I added to my note because I had Susan Stuckey McCormick on the podcast and she's kind of one of my favorite people. I listened to that. I, I heard her Did you? <laughs> mention that something about, yes, the, the questions were asked. and Yes. And the patient, she said, make sure you write in the patient, you know, agreed to the procedure and was okay to move forward with the procedure. She had a medical legal case with that, that, that there was no indication that the patient said, oh, I'm good to proceed with this surgery, I guess. She kind of talked to me a little bit about that outside of the podcast. And so that, that's just one more blurb I kind of slipped into my note that the patient you know, understands everything and said, yes, I want to do this. Let's move forward. There's Because we all get that patient who sits down in our chair and is like, why am I here? What's going on? And that whole, whole situation, which is frustrating, but certainly shouldn't be going to surgery unless the patient knows what's happening and they're totally okay with going. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to think of a scenario where that isn't the case. Maybe if it's a kind of a patient who has some mental disability, like dementia or something, I could see. Definitely want to note that in your note that they were okay with that. And if they are a patient that has a mental disability, you know, note that down and note what the guardian said and, you know, that you're okay to proceed and, and all this stuff. Yeah. And the, uh, there's so many little nuances to this. And I don't know if I can remember back all the details to residency about our notes, but I, I just feel like since I've been out of residency, my notes have, I hope gotten, they've evolved. Yeah. Like for example, just something that came to mind when you were saying that was in a lot of our consults, well, actually procedures too, for a minor, usually in your procedure, it's obvious you're going to say, you know, informed consent reviewed and obtained, maybe right by mother or whatever. But, but even in the consultation, if it's a minor, you really should say like 17 year old female presents for, you know, evaluation of third molars yes. with mother. Totally. You know, you, you should probably mention that there's an adult there. And I, yep. maybe I didn't have that in my template for a while, but it just dawned on me at some point that that, you know, is an obvious thing. So just so many little things, but also, I agree completely when you mentioned that you have some specific, very specific complications listed out. I have that as well, especially for third molars. And I think third molars is probably the biggest one for us because it's certainly not the biggest procedure as far as invasiveness and risks of complications that we do, but probably medical legally it is because as simple as it can be, probably the biggest medical legal risks for our field come from probably that and, and implants more than an orthognathic, I would say. I mean, in the sense of a nerve injury, somebody's going to probably sue you for a nerve injury from a wisdom tooth before they sue you for a nerve injury for a BSSO, which is funny because a BSSO is so, so much more invasive and, <laughs> and more expected, but maybe that's what it is. It's just more expected. Right. And yes. again, it all comes down to how you talk to the patients and how you prepare them both in your exam and discussing, but also how you notate it. So 
anyway, my point is that, yes, I think for third molars, your template should have very specific things listed out. And I also have the same thing, and I didn't used to have this, and I don't believe we used to have this in residency, but I've added that also for anesthesia. So a blurb about risks, benefits, alternatives, and then of anesthesia, IV anesthesia, mm -hmm. including but not limited to. And you know, you don't have to list everything that could ever happen, but I at least write some some things because that's something I think we generally miss. And I think you'd probably agree. It's not like you talk about the third molars in your consult, you mention the nerves, you know, the lingual nerve, the inferior alveolar nerve, you talk about them, and then you're like, anyway, there's a risk of death, uh, paralysis, stroke. You don't talk about those things. And I'm not saying you should, but you should have some sort of well-crafted mention of that, I think because you are providing anesthesia and that's what's in an anesthesiologist note. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. I like that being part of your discussion about anesthesia because I'm sure a good chunk of the malpractice cases that happen against oral surgeons are involving not the actual tooth extraction or whatever jaw repair, but the anesthesia portion of it. Certainly if there's serious complications, people being hospitalized, intubated, you know, uh, prolonged strokes, death. I mean, you got to make sure all that was discussed and noted in your note. Yeah. And I think that it's a slippery slope. You don't want to go down that road in your third molar consult, but I think you have to have some sort of mention of it, obviously. And, and I think just that the way I think it might be helpful for, you know, students or residents to think about note writing is think of each part of your note as an individualized section of, of how you, you know, spoke to that patient and everything has unique risks. So if it's an exposed bond, you know, maybe, maybe your template is slightly different. You know what I mean? So just have to think of it that way. Yeah. And then the last part of that is the way I think about an anesthesia or a note that involves the plan for anesthesia would be you're held to the standard of an anesthesiologist in that moment. So you should have, obviously, you should have an airway exam. Yeah. I recently added a review of systems to those consult notes because that's what an anesthesiologist would, would have in their note, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, just if you think about it, about if you're held to the standard of X when you're doing that, then that might help you think about your notes too. I do know that Almsnick has some templates that kind of include some of these phrases we were talking about. So that's a good place to look if you're looking for templates i could email you my template if you're curious so there's there's places that you can kind of find some of the stuff if you're curious and omnic has informed consents for just about every procedure like individually yes that's right which is great i don't necessarily use all of those but i do for example have emrond informed consent from omsnick so if it's a patient that has a risk of that, I also have them sign that, for example. So anyway, it's just a good resource and you can look through it and see what things you want to incorporate in your, your practice. Okay. Certainly we didn't cover everything, but I think the main point is that you're pretty specific, documenting all these things, try to use a template to remind yourself, try to do it as soon as you can after the procedure. And just be aware that every aspect of your note could be used to help you in a medical legal situation or hurt you. And so my experience is the more documentation, the better. I think that that's always good. And having timestamps, I was going to add that, you know, usually if you're typing them, hopefully, or you're on a computer that locks them in it's so much better to have that, I think, than a paper note. When I was first starting the doctor before me that I kind of inherited the situation from, he just did a paper note where it was a checkboxing, like check, I did a flap, check, I sectioned the tooth, check, I troughed. And it was just like, check, check, check. And, the, and usually the assistant would check it and he would just sign the bottom. I had an attorney once tell me that it's, those notes are much harder to defend and it's so much better to have a detailed written computer note with a timestamp. And so good stuff to, to just be aware of. Yeah, definitely. I think, and that's coming, I think that comes back to the practice of it, the skill of it, just like when you get into good habits doing it, 
by the time you get out and practice, it's not such a headache. It's not such a burden. You're good at it. Yes. In regards to, maybe we can just talk a little bit about communicating with the patient um, before and after a procedure. So as certainly to help them understand and feel comfortable, but also to protect yourself, you know, from getting into some type of misunderstanding or medical legal battle or problem with the patient. What are some of the things you do as far as communicating with the patient go to kind of help them and yourself? So you're saying after something has occurred? Yeah, let's let's do that. And then maybe even just before the procedure to preemptively, is there anything you do beforehand to kind of mitigate something bad happening? I mean, yeah, probably just very basic things, but I, you know, I basically it's kind of like how, how hospitals are now. I mean, most hospitals are, they have timeouts and then they have a surgical pause. So at multiple times in the OR, you're, the whole room is, is engaged in, in what is happening, yeah. who this patient is and the pertinent things. So, I mean, in the office setting, I kind of do a mini version of that less formally, but just, yeah, to the patient, okay, you know, what are we doing today? Or we're doing X, Y, Z. Do you agree? You know, something to that effect, which is basic, but at least it it solidifies that because every now and then the patient's like, well, wait, I I thought we were doing this or no, you know, you'd be surprised. And, And even I do a fair amount of same day locals where like, you know, I've never seen that patient before and they're coming in for extraction of a tooth. And so I triple check with the patient. We are doing this tooth. This is, we're doing tooth number two today. We're moving that. That is the last tooth on the upper right in your mouth, whatever it is. And sometimes they're like, wait, I thought it was the one in front of that. And it leads you down a path that might be confusing and frustrating, but it also makes sure you don't have errors. So anyway, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. And it just, just takes usually a, a few seconds to do that. Yeah. And I would say multiple people have mentioned this in the podcast, but for some reason, Dr. Felsenfeld from UCLA, I always remember him saying in his consult, he always wears his white coat, he goes in, he sits down on a chair, he faces the patient, he looks at them in the eye, he smiles, he points everything out, he asks what questions they have. It's everything to make the patient feel like he's listening and there's nothing rushed about it. At first in my career, it was very much a, you know, the assistants do as much as possible. I walk in, I'm standing, and, you know, maybe I'll say a couple things about post-op care. And then what are your questions? And sometimes they ask, other times they can kind of sense, hey, where everyone's ready for surgery. And this is pressing on me if it's a same day thing, or it's like, hey, everyone, you know, I can see there's a bunch of patients and clearly the doctor's rushed here for my consult. Like, oh, I won't ask any questions, but it's important for me that they feel comfortable asking questions. And there's some type of connection with me. I feel like Creating that during the consult is also self-protective, you know, against any medical legal things. But also it's just for some reason, I feel like things go better with the patient and you and your communication after if your initial meeting of them and talking to them is good and not rushed. Yeah. And I mean, I think that speaks to the concept of bedside manner. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that I think I don't know, might might be hard to learn for some people mm-hmm. and it comes easier to others than to some than others. But I mean, I see a lot of patients who have come to our practice and they weren't initially referred to our practice. They came because they had a bad experience with another doctor and it, sometimes it was just simply bedside manner. And I, I always ask too, if, I mean, this, now we're getting off on a tangent, but I, I always ask patients if I see a referral that was to another oral surgeon, for example, and you can see in our system that, you know, we have a referral, but it wasn't to us. I always ask, oh, did you see that oral surgeon or or why did you come here? Just because I'm curious and I like to figure that out. But I, you know, patients like to tell their stories a lot. Yeah. And I think I had one yesterday and she went on and on and on about how she had such a terrible experience. And to the point where now for the remainder of her third molars, she needs to be sedated because she's so scared. Oh, geez. Yeah. So that was, that was procedural, but it was also bedside manner. And had that surgeon been nicer to her, mm-hmm. you know, but anyway, you're right. It really sets you up for success. Even if something goes wrong, 
we all have complications. And if the patient likes you, they're a lot less likely to sue you. Right. For sure. Okay. So what about, you know, procedures done after the fact there's a problem and the patient, you know, is upset about something, or maybe we should say something happened in the procedure complication happened. We could start with that one and then maybe talk about the upset patient afterward. But how do you deal with that one? You're in a procedure, something happened. How do you talk to the patient about a complication? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's something that's really hard to do. I've, I've had many experiences where either you're doing a procedure and it's a local and something has gone not correctly. And now you need to inform them maybe during the procedure. Okay, this occurred. I'm going to do this now to fix this issue or whatever it is. And then you're obviously going to talk more about it at the end. Or, you know, something occurred during a sedation. So you do the best you can in that scenario. And then you talk to the patient slash the family member, you know, especially if it's a minor afterwards. So you have to be upfront. I mean, that's to answer your question. I can think of two examples off the top of my head. I mean, you know, every now and then you'll see, you'll see the nerve, you'll see the intraalveolar nerve, for example. That's not a complication, but I tell the patient and their, their parent, for example, in the recovery room, everything went great. I did see the nerve. You might expect a little numbness. Maybe I'm just being over, overly conservative there, but I just want to be upfront because I feel like if you're upfront, if something does, if, if something does occur and they do have a nerve injury, you know, it doesn't look like you're hiding anything. Yeah. And you're just telling them everything they need to know. And that's what you would want to know. I had a situation recently where I was putting in an implant and it was doing an internal sinus lift and and just the the torque wrenches, we didn't have all the the ones that I would have liked. It was an old kit. It's a long story, but basically it was going in with decent torque and I tried to torque it in more and then it started spinning. Okay. But I needed to go in another two millimeters. And the decision was, could I have left it a little proud and it's a little mobile, not, not super mobile, but I just didn't like that. I, I just, you know, there's a chance it would have healed fine, yeah. but it wasn't great. And I said to the patient, you know what? I just, I'm not thrilled with this and I'd like to take it out and graft it. And I know this is terrible mm-hmm. in the sense of it's going to be another several months till we redo it. I'm very sorry. You know, and she was upset, but guess what? She came back a few months later, we put the implant and it was no problem. Yeah. And she still likes me. Mm-hmm. She was upset though. She was very upset. Because she's a very nervous patient and it was a lot for her to even go through it. But I think in the end, she still came back and she, we still had a good rapport because I was just upfront about it. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to, to kind of swallow your pride sometimes, but it happens to all of us. Yeah. And if you try to sweep it under the rug, it's not going to go well for you. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, exactly what you're saying. When you are straight up front with the patient, you're quick to apologize. And I know attorneys will tell you, oh, never apologize for what you did. You know, it's okay to apologize for the patient being upset about something, but never admit fault. For me, if I did something wrong, I pretty much admit it and say, hey, here was an issue we had. You know, I, I want to correct this. And here's what's going on. I feel like that always goes so much better than like, trying to skirt around it and the patient can kind of tell that something went wrong, but you're being really vague and you're not being straight up front that they, they just get much more suspicious. Whereas if you're just honest and straight up, they're just completely disarmed and they think, Hey, this guy isn't hiding anything. And I trust him. And most people understand that surgery isn't like a math equation. There are things that can go wrong. Yeah. Getting a patient's trust early on, you're much more likely to keep that trust. And if you never got it early or you broke it early mm-hmm. or, or never break it, I mean, that's the goal. You just have to be a doctor to that patient that wants the best result, wants the best thing for the patient. And if there's a problem, you'll do whatever you can to rectify it. But I agree with that sentiment about like, you're not apologizing necessarily that you did something wrong. I mean, now there are complications that are your fault and there are complications that aren't. Correct. So, yeah. I mean, if you did something wrong and you slipped and you cut this person's lip, mm-hmm. I mean, is that your fault? Well, yeah, but you do whatever you need to do to correct it. For example, I mean, Fix it. Yeah. versus 
a post-op infection. I mean, right. Well, I don't know. We all, we all did M&M in, in residency. And so is a post-op infection your fault? Maybe sometimes, but unless you know it, you know, it's just, it's, it's a statistically possible outcome. So, yeah, totally. And I don't, yeah, for those things, bleeding, even most nerve injuries that I felt like was a routine extraction infection. I don't, after the fact, I don't apologize and say, Hey, I'm so sorry. You know, this is, this is my fault. I, I, I usually say, I'm sorry that you went through this and that there was, you know, you had pain that you had some sleepless nights. I feel so bad about that. The infection is something that is part of a risk that we take bacteria is introduced into places down there in the bone where it wasn't before regardless i'm so sorry that you're having pain and problems and i'm here to help you and hold your hand through this issue yeah and that's where empathy i think comes from as long as you're empathetic it doesn't mean you're saying i screwed up necessarily right if you didn't which is fine but you just have to be empathetic and say you know if i was in your shoes I would be upset too. And here's how we'll get through it. Yep. You have to deal with things like, for example, if somebody gets an infection and you did not give them, you know, routine post-op antibiotics, which are maybe not indicated at all. And they may say, well, you didn't give me antibiotics. They might look to, to point a finger and you have to be able to stand up for the decisions that you've made too. And, you know, that, that's the thing you, you don't want to be defensive, but at the same time, you need to be empathetic. But at the same time, you need to explain what, why you chose the route you chose, for example. Like I, I did a coronectomy on a patient and obviously to avoid a nerve injury. And upon removing the crown, one of the roots came loose, which see experiences like this teaches you to even make your note better because now my coronectomy note or whatever has still a risk of nerve injury or because if, if a root comes out inadvertently from a coronectomy, you might have a nerve injury and right. you can't leave a loose root. Yep. So, I mean, that sort of thing needs to be discussed with the patient too. But, and the patient was very upset and it got to a point where I was being a little bit defensive and I wish I could go back in that conversation and maybe redo it a little bit. And ultimately everything was fine. But the point is I was defending my actions because my attempt was unsuccessful. Mm-hmm but I had the best intentions and I tried to avoid this because I knew she was a high risk and it turned out she was right. Yep. So it's all, but again, you know, this topic is about note writing. So if you can incorporate these things into your notes and, and I guess the other point of this is if a complication occurs, document everything and the conversations that you have and the thoughts that you have and the, and the issues that you think are going to occur and how you might fix them. I mean, because once a complication occurs, now you now your notes better get really thorough if they weren't already. Oh, for sure. Yep. So I think the note writing is critical to definitely avoid or at least help you with your potential medical legal issues. I think also just communicating like we're talking about, being straightforward, connecting with the patient. I don't, I can't, I'm trying to look this up, but Malcolm Gladwell, he's one of my favorite authors. He had a book where he discussed basically this research that was done on surgeons who got sued versus surgeons who didn't. And like the biggest factor, it was in Blink, I believe, basically said that the biggest factor to determine if a surgeon got sued or not was, I mean, interestingly enough, not how good they were with their hands, you know, how much experience they had doing the surgery. It was all about how basically empathetic and good they were at connecting with the patient. We've hit this on the head a little bit, but just to beat a dead horse, that is the number one thing I think can help you to avoid getting into these issues. And also after the fact, you know, I have had many patients like a lot of people have who after the fact get upset. For example, just last week I had a patient who was upset because his prescriptions didn't get transmitted to the pharmacy. He was one of our patients towards the end of the day. And we have this, we use Epic, you know, where we put our prescription and sent to the pharmacy and something happened. They weren't transmitted correctly and the pharmacy didn't fill it. 
and I wasn't noticed notified of that till the next morning. And I had to re enter the prescriptions in and the patient was very, very upset, you know, that he went through a night without his pain pills and that. So we called the office. It was on my day off and just railed on the front desk staff about how inappropriate that was and given the amount of money he paid, he shouldn't have had that experience. And then of course they called me and I've learned not to hide behind my staff and, and not to do this telephone where I tell the front desk staff and then they talk to the patient and then the patient talks to the front desk staff and they talk to me. That's just how bad communication happens. So I immediately got on the phone. I call the patient. I say, tell me what happened. He says, I had a sleepless night. It was horrible. I was sweating. I was shaking. I say, I listen and I say, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I feel so bad. And just listening to him do the whole thing, you know, and it took about 15 minutes and in the end, I'm like, you know, that's that's our fault as an office. I'm sorry that that communication wasn't there. Here's what we're going to do going forward to help you. You know, here's my cell number, blah, blah, blah. Even though my cell was included on the post-op structures we gave him. You know, I what I wasn't was defensive. And I wasn't like, well, you know, my fo- cell phone number was on the post-op instructions. You could have just called me or texted me. I would have called, you know, like that attitude would have gotten me nowhere. But as soon as I feel like I'm empathetic and kind of just listening and saying, I care about you. I'm sorry this happened. Like it's all pretenses are dropped and all, you know, contentious feelings are usually dropped. There are that small percent of people who just want to fight no matter what you say. But I think after the fact, communicating with them directly and being empathetic is for me, number one, to avoid problems. Yeah, definitely. It's just, it's hard in a situation like that, not to be defensive because yes, maybe you didn't do the prescriptions, right? Maybe, or your staff did something and there was a mistake, but in the end, yeah, the number was there. (laughs) So it's a hard thing because you, if you're getting kind of berated for six minutes, you might get a little tired of it and say, well, you know, the number was there. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's a tough thing because you, but you're, you're right. I agree. You just have to be able to swallow that and just let it flow and then kindly say things like that and how we'll do better in the, in the future. Yep. So I think that, and then also to bring it back to documenting, documenting that and making some note that, Hey, I, I called the patient. I talked to him. Here's what he said. Here's what I said. He was feeling good. I helped him out with this. I gave him my cell, you know, if, if there was any type of, financial reimbursement. I told the patient that we would cover this portion. I don't know. But if there is those conversations, I've learned to really document even the phone call is critical. I had one issue with a board complaint a few years ago, where the patient claimed that there was no follow up. And that she was just saying that she had to go to a different doctor and a different doctor said I did the procedure wrong. And then there was a board complaint about how I don't do follow-up and I don't care about my patients. And in the chart, I hadn't documented any of our phone calls, but luckily I had Google voice and my, it stores all of my messages and things. And so I was able to search my email and pull up all these texts that her and I had had back and forth and phone calls and Luckily, the case, it didn't go further. I I called her and kind of calmed her down a little bit, but the least I had that to protect me and and it made me think, gosh, I really should have, at the very least, copied and pasted this into the chart, our conversations. But It would have been even better if I had written a little paragraph about what we talked about and all that stuff. Do you have comments about that? Well, I mean, I think a good summary to all this is when in doubt, over-document because when you're in residency, these things might happen, but you're in this protected bubble. Then you get out, you feel probably pretty confident about most things, you're doing fine, a year or two goes by, and then all of a sudden you have a situation like that, which might be minor and you don't think much of it, and then a board complaint happens, mm-hmm. right? I, didn't even, I haven't really thought about that, but people can do anything. It's like a, it's like a bad review. I mean, you could do the perfect the most perfect surgery. Yeah. 
and somebody could write a horrible review about you, your practice, about everything, whatever, they say whatever they want. And even if it's not true, it can take you down. You get a bad review like that. So you just never know. And so documenting is the only thing you can do to protect yourself other than just being a good person and a good doctor and, and being empathetic and not being defensive, basically. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, so much comes back to that. Documenting the crap out of everything, even though it can be painful to do that. But set up systems for yourself to make it less painful. Have really great templates. Some people I know have, you know, while they're doing the consult with the patient and they're talking with them directly, they're sitting there, they have an assistant or somebody right there behind the patient or on in this corner typing everything down. I mean, I've gone to my doctors and had that happen where someone is typing or you know, I've had the doctor himself, usually my primary care does this, like as I'm talking to him, he's on the computer, like with his back to me typing frantically. And that's kind of annoying when they're not facing me while they're talking and, and stuff like that. But they're, they're so paranoid about notes. And this guy is a primary care doctor. He doesn't even do surgery. He doesn't hardly even actually touch patients. And he's like freaked out about his notes. I mean, that just shows you how much we should be careful about it and and take precautions so that we're documenting as much as we can. Totally. And yeah, I I was thinking about the topic of a scribe that a lot of physicians have. Mm -hmm. And maybe that would work for somebody in in, in this field. I don't, I think it would help me, but I don't, it's not a necessarily an expense I feel is warranted, but, but yeah, I mean, there's lots of, I mean, the big healthcare systems, lots of scribes that exist. So yeah, I mean, it, and they're very field specific. There's like ENT scribes and whatever, but yeah, definitely a good good thing to think about. Or also, here's one other little thing: you have to be careful with dictation. I think there's a lot of people now who dictate their notes just with different softwares, and and that's great, and that is helpful. Maybe for some, it might be faster, but you have to double check those notes because if you've ever used talk to text, which I do quite frequently. I've sent a lot of text messages with garbledy gook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You don't want to have a garbledy gook note that you didn't read. No. I've seen those. Yeah. And texts are legal documents. Like that will be used against you. A patient can pull up a text and say, here's what he said. And so be careful with your texts, right? And make sure they're, like you're saying, they're clean. They're to the point. They're, they're not unprofessional, all that stuff. Always be professional. Yep. Luckily, you and I have we're just kind of born with that air of professionalism. We we that's both right. know other doctors who struggle with that. Yeah. Some have been on your podcast. That's right. We don't want to name names. No. No, we don't. Because <laughs> we're professional. Some people are just a little more colorful, and that's not a problem. They're just there's just more joy in their heart that's difficult to contain in a in professional environment. So yeah, those people need to listen to this. <laughs> Excellent. Any other <laughs> words of wisdom you have for note writing, for medical legal protection? I, I mean, you know, the only thing I can think of is just, you know, not everybody uses OMSNIC, I know, but if you do, it is a really good resource. And especially if you're a new if you're a resident or you're a new grad, there there's a lot of good, well, they actually give you discounts if you do these few of these courses, but they really do go over some of this stuff that makes you think, and they give you examples of specific, you know, specific malpractice suits that were brought and how the notes are very pertinent and, and good and bad examples. So anyway, I would just use that resource. I think that's a really helpful one. Yeah. One last story, just to tell because I know stories help people I kind of was oh gosh a year ago the victim of extortion I don't know if you're familiar with that term I am now after listening to your podcast about it that was that one had me laughing (laughs) what extortion so there's oh I was also the victim of identity theft oh I'm thinking of that one okay yes that one was that was insane. That was there was a car chase. Yes, it was. It should have been a Netflix series, but I'm still <laughs> in negotiations with them. Maybe I'm going to Amazon Prime. I don't know. Who will play you? That's right. That's right. 
But this one was an actual patient who tried to extort me. And I wasn't familiar with the term extortion. What does extortion mean? Isn't it kind of like bribery? Yeah, it's the one word I describe it as is kind of like piracy. And if you type in the Google officials, the practice of obtaining something, especially money, through force or threats. So you're you're threatening or trying to force someone to give you money by saying, if you don't give me money, I will do X, Y, and Z to threaten you and you know harm you, you or your business or whatever. And that's that's illegal. And I had a patient who tried that. It was a patient who had just routine carious teeth, root tips, was, you know, took out some root tips. And the, after the fact, the patient had kind of a panic attack, had a minor seizure because the patient just wasn't feeling good. We could kind of communicate with them and had them recovery for like a long time. I think an hour of just watching them and still patient wasn't feeling great. So we decided to call EMS and they took her away on a stretcher just to check her and you know, we were concerned, wanted to make sure she did okay. Anyways, the patient after the fact said, oh, you guys need to pay for all my hospital bills I had after the fact. And I didn't want you to call the hospital. I didn't want EMS to come, even though at the time she said she did. And I felt like we should. And so I did, you know, regardless of if she said or not. But anyways, um, then we said, you know, that's whatever. We we don't do that. This is a situation where you got to work with your health insurance and blah, blah. And she said, well, if you don't give me, she actually said, I think it was $175,000 by the end of this week, I am going to tell, I'm going to blast you guys on social media and I'm going to tell the news about how horrible you guys are and I'll do all this stuff to extort you. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty ridiculous. I never come against this situation where someone was literally a modern day kind of pirate saying, give me all your money. And if you don't, you know, I'm going to shoot you. That's basically what's happening here. <laughs> and so I contacted my malpractice and they said, you know, this is extortion. This is illegal. And <laughs> <laughs> the, the great thing was the patient wrote this her extortion was all written down in an email to our office saying here's all the money i want and here's what i'm going to do written down to you in facebook and instagram and i'm going to call fox news and they're going and we're going to take you down and ruin your business you know and that is luckily when it's written down like that and it's not just word of mouth that's just like a slam dunk case of extortion and it's not going anywhere, but it taught me a, a bit of a lesson about being careful with that. And there were some signs before the procedure where the patient was talking. Uh, of course, after the fact, I remember the patient was talking about how she'd sued other doctors before me. This is just sitting in the, in the consultation talking to her. And so signs about how she was very prone to do stuff like this. And, and so, you know, I don't know how much would have changed knowing that I think I still would have done what I did. But there's just so many people out there that I think, especially after COVID, that a lot of people became very desperate and some crazy stuff has been going on even since then. And so just be careful and protect yourself. You know, I know we like to think that we all love to sing that Luke Bryan song. You know, what is it? I think most people are good. Most people are good. It goes something like that. And how he thinks everyone in the world is good. They're good people. But when it comes to patients, there's a lot of bad eggs, man. And you have to protect yourself. Just be careful. That's all my, that's my words. What are your thoughts? I mean, I, I think that's why you're the guru of the podcast, because you have just about a story for everything. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't say I've been extorted, but yeah, you just have to... <laughs> You just have to do the right thing because if you didn't send her, you know, to the hospital and and she sued you for that, well, now you didn't do the right thing. So now you're at fault, right? So you did the right thing. Right. And now I have a question about that, just out of curiosity. Is the act of the threat of extortion illegal or only if she went ahead and did the Facebook blast? You know what I'm saying? Yes. That is a good lawyer question. 
So it ended there, basically. You just said to her, hey, this is illegal. Stop. Well, well, my attorney, yeah, my attorney said, okay, don't talk to this patient anymore. And because I was trying to contact her and she was being just very difficult. And they said, we're talking to her. And the, my attorney basically called and sent her a letter saying, this is extortion. This is illegal what you're doing. So cease and desist. Yeah, exactly. Stop talking and threatening Dr. Stukin's practice and, you know, terrifying all the staff members and doing stuff like that. That's a good question, though. According, I mean, I felt like my attorney was saying just the the act of making the threat is illegal, like threatening to blackmail. I, but I should look that up to see if that is illegal itself or, you know, if you actually have to commit the crime. Like if she would have, and she did go on Facebook and Instagram, you know, and blast us and say how horrible we were. And so she made do on some of her threats, you know, and, and I doubt any doctor would go and say, oh, I'm going to sue you because you made the threat, but you never did anything. I, I'm sure you wouldn't get too far in court. So it's probably more of carrying out the act, I would think. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Modern day pirates, my friend. If people are sailing around the Black Pearl all around you in your office, you just can't see it. (laughs) Oh, good times. Nice reference. Well, yes. (laughs) Dave, I appreciate you taking the time. I know this isn't a super sexy, glamorous topic, and we may not get a ton of listeners just based on the title of this episode. Well, maybe you could make the title a little sexy. Yeah. I might have to trick some of my listeners into listening to this because it's good for them. And sometimes it's like you lie to your kids and you say, oh, that broccoli is going to taste like a Snickers bar. And they take a bite and maybe even though they spit it out, maybe they inhaled a couple of those granules of broccoli, you know, so you got to trick them. Yeah. It's like when somebody's reached the depths of your podcast, they'll be like, oh, I'll just listen to this one. <laughs> and then they're going to get to this part and be like, this was funny. See? Or they'll be like, wow, I can't believe I listened to it this long. <laughs> exactly. Man, I hung in there and finally they gave me some nuggets at the very end. <laughs> Jeez. That's right. You never know. Yep. All right, my man. Well, let's reconnect and yep. keep the magic going. All right. I appreciate the invite and we'll be in touch. Okay. Talk to you later. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. For more information on these podcasts, please visit everydayoralsurgery.com. I would love it if you would also connect with us on Instagram and Facebook through our Everyday Oral Surgery pages. Also, if you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or you can text or call me at 720-441-6059. If you have any topics you'd like to hear discussed on this podcast or feedback on certain episodes that have already aired, also please call or email me. I've found many of our interviewees through people contacting me after listening, and for that I am supremely grateful. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.